You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Our other moderators, Elisa and Yvette, will not be joining me this week because the day this podcast comes out, November 16th, 2017, is during the ABA Standing Committee's annual National Security Law Conference. While we are all at the conference, I hope you'll enjoy today's episode, which was recorded at a recent committee event titled Keeping America Safe, Secure Networks for Critical Sectors, which is drawn from an MIT report of the same name and which we will link to in the show notes. Elisa Yvette and I will be back soon with interviews recorded on site at the conference. And if you'd like to see live conference updates, please follow the committee on Twitter at ABANATSEC or check out our Twitter hashtag NATSECLive. For now, I'm going to turn this over to MIT senior fellow Joel Brenner, who's being introduced by the ABA Standing Committee Chair, Judge James Baker. It's my privilege and honor to um, briefly introduce Joel Brenner. I'm trying to figure out what exactly to say. I don't want to read his biography. He's had a number of senior government positions uh, as well in, as senior positions in the private sector. He was the inspector general at the NSA. He was in charge of national counterintelligence. Uh, Joel is also a... Um, a fellow at MIT. He was the Wilhelm Fellow at MIT last year. He's a senior fellow now, and next year he'll be a very senior fellow. Um, and the, But here's what I want to mention about that. Um, I've seen him up there, and the whole theory about having people like Joel Brenner serve as a fellow at a place like MIT is to introduce practicality an application to the thought process that's going on up there. And um, I can't say that that's been a full success, but it has resulted in uh, this excellent report, which he's going to talk about today, which in my view is the most granular report on the topic uh, and really moves the ball forward. And then the other thing I've noticed with Joel up there is he's a mentor to every single person there, whether they're the professors the construction people working on the site. Uh, Whoever is there, I've watched, they go up to Joel Brenner like he's a rock star or a pro basketball player or something, and he's helping everybody as a mentor up there. And that's a real testament to his commitment as a teacher wherever he is. So anyway, uh, thank you for this report, Joel, and thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, my successor is the Wilhelm Fellow. I'm, really <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm going to do two things this morning. Uh, first, I want to say it's just great to be back here. It's great to be back here. Um, there are two things I want to do. Uh, I'm going to report to you on the policy work we've been doing at MIT that Jamie mentioned on protecting critical infrastructure networks. And the strategic point I'm going to leave you with is that, yeah, is that, be- is that, How's that? Can you hear? Okay. The, the, um, the strategic point I'm going to leave you with is that the principal challenges are not technological. They are legal, commercial, and political. Second, I'm going to make the case that the legal component of this challenge should be a core concern 
of our committee. Unless you've been living under a rock, you're aware that the critical social functions that run our society are under attack. Uh, it started maybe at Saudi Aramco in 2012, the world's biggest oil refiner. In, in, in 2013, the DPRK shut down banks in Seoul for several days. Uh, the Ukrainian grid went down, electric grid went down in 2016. Also in 2016 was the attack on Dyn, the internet um, provider underlying services um, to the internet. And I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. And of course the British National Health Service was completely taken offline for some days. Especially worrisome is that criminal organizations as well as foreign security services and their cutouts now have the prowess to launch this kind of attack. You remember ransomware attacks on hospitals. Imagine a ransomware attack on a regional transport network. That's the sort of thing we're in for. The digital systems that control critical infrastructure in the United States and in virtually every other country are easily penetrated and architecturally weak. And we have known this for a long time. Since 1980, however, presidential leadership on infrastructure security has been hesitant and chiefly rhetorical. President Trump's recent executive order clearly intends to change that, but the proof will be in the follow-through, and we should watch closely for, um, for, for follow-on steps. Meanwhile, system operators and policy proposals have tended to focus on short-term fixes and tactical improvements, such things as marginally better tools for attack discovery and response setting up security operations centers where none had existed, information sharing, usually in the form of complaints that the government doesn't do enough of it, rather than asking why the private sector, which has massive troves of information, doesn't share it among themselves, even in the same sector. And of course, more and better training. These are well and good. Um, smart people in and out of government have been working hard at them, and they're important but they are purely tactical adjustments. We've been saying and doing these same things for 15 or more years. All the while, we've walked backwards, and we continue to walk backwards on network security. This is a losing game. Critical infrastructure is now less secure than it was 15 years ago. Less secure. Not because we haven't become better at defense, we have, but the offense has become better as well. And offense is cheaper, and the threat environment is now worse than it was 15 years ago for infrastructure. Much effort has also been devoted to developing better security standards, but most standards are merely advisory, and there are too many of them. In any case, Compliance does not imply security, a fact that continues to baffle many boardrooms. Heartland payments systems and Target were challenged, were, were hacked virtually on the day that they were declared to be compliant with payment card industry standards. Without compliance, firms are most unlikely to be secure, but compliance is merely a baseline. Meanwhile, key federal departments, notably but not exclusively Homeland Security, Defense, and Energy, have worked hard to encourage, keyword encourage, 
better uh, infrastructure security. But these efforts have not altered and cannot alter the dismal strategic balance in which the defense holds the short end of the stick and in which weak nations and eventually non-state actors can harm the United States at painful levels that are intentionally below the level of armed attack. At the same time, the vulnerability of this infrastructure is a constraint on America's freedom of action in the world, even at the military level. For instance, following the attack on J.P. Morgan in 2014, uh, initially thought to come, in, incorrectly thought to come from Russia, the New York Times ran a story based on a leaked account of a meeting in which President Obama asked his intel chiefs whether Putin was sending him a message. He wanted to know whether he was being told that if we got more involved in Ukraine, armed the Ukrainians, or got, fit, or got militarily involved, Putin was threatening to take down a major American bank. Nobody could tell him. That is the sort of constraint I'm talking about. No president can make decisions on a global scale involving even military, um, military power without understanding the vulnerability of private sector-owned critical infrastructure. The underlying problem is that the owners and operators of critical infrastructure have aggressively aggregated data and linked functions without regard to long-term risk. They've also retrofitted industrial operating technology with digitized controls exposed to the internet. The control for a railway switch, for example, or a power generation plant used to be locked up. The, the security on them was physical. They're now reachable and potentially controllable electronically from most any spot on the face of the earth. The efficiencies that such linkage created for managing distributed technologies were immediate and obvious. The vulnerabilities were also immediate, but they weren't obvious except to computer scientists and electrical engineers. Or they were deniable, and they continued to be denied for a long time. They're now obvious to everybody, and they're no longer deniable. About two years ago, several of us at MIT began asking what a substantially more secure, more secure environment for critical infrastructure would look like. And what on earth keeps us from getting there? To answer these questions, we convened workshops to explore four critical verticals, electricity, communications, finance, and uh, um, oil and gas. We didn't do transportation because we didn't have time. We limited sessions to 20 participants, and we imposed the Chatham House rule. We wanted candid conversations. We didn't want presentations, so we didn't ask for any. We just asked for two things. Tell us what the greatest strategic risks are in your sector, and what are the challenges that keep you from dealing with them. The resulting report published in March has been distributed to you, at least electronically, and it distills the results. It covers a lot of ground, but in the brief time I have this morning, I'm going to discuss only three of our recommendations. First, we proposed that key operating controls be isolated from public networks if they were to be made reasonably secure. I notice I'm talking about reasonable security and more security, not perfect security, which doesn't exist. 
Not all controls, but those controls on the very few functions in any sector that must not be allowed to fail. Because if they failed, they would have cascading economic and social effects. Of course, saying this is the beginning and not the end of a conversation. There are reasonable differences of opinion about what isolation means, about the appropriate degrees of isolation, and about how to accomplish it. But the idea is not far-fetched. It is, in fact, quite realistic, and I'll give you an example. I know of at least one pipeline operator that runs parallel pressure controls on its lines. If the digital controls were corrupted, and lots of people know how to do that, in order to ramp up the pressure in the line, in order to make the line explode, a parallel pressure gauge unlinked to that network would automatically close that, close that down. So even though the, the operator of the line is looking at a screen that tells them power is normal while it's actually going through the roof, there will be a control on that line that will shut that line down so that it cannot explode. That's an example of what I'm talking about. Of course, um, many business will, will, businesses will resist this kind of step because it's, it has a cost. Uh, isolation imposes costs either in labor or in equipment or both. But security must be paid for. Second recommendation. Our government, together with like-minded governments, should support a market for simpler, safer control technology. Why? Why do I say this? Complexity is the enemy of security. Superfluous functionality brings with it multiple vulnerabilities. Yet controls are marketed for many purposes, and the chips in those controls are field programmable gate arrays. FPGAs are cheap and useful precisely because they can be used for almost any purpose, which is why the chip in a control on a pipeline which has to make that valve open or close or somewhere in between, probably has the same chip in it as your kid's game box does with two million lines of code in it. Hiding code in two million, hiding malware, malicious code in two million lines of code is a cinch. Finding it is next to impossible if we haven't seen it before. This is why there are people in that industry who were quite loud in our, in our workshops and telling us that they have a supply chain vulnerability. And that vulnerability doesn't come from tampering with the supply chain, it comes from the nature of that supply chain. Fixing this would be a heavy lift. We are certainly not proposing the invention of new technologies. That would be a complete non-starter. We do propose research into modification to existing commercially available technology. For example, could whole sections of a computer chip be reliably and verifiably disabled, rendered functionless, so that the, the only part of that chip was the part that was necessary to control a valve or do whatever was necessary for a particular use? If we could do that, and we don't know whether, I don't know, the, the answer to that depends on the architecture of that chip, as well as commercial willingness to do it. But if questions like that could be answered favorably, the government, principally the Departments of Defense and Energy and Homeland Security, 
ought to support a market, a global market for simpler technology. If we could do that, corrupting our networks would be much more difficult. Finding corruption would be dramatically easier. This is, and removing it would be dramatically easier. Third, four factors, as Harvey and I like to say to one another, really influence behavior in a market economy. What are they? Market opportunity is first. Tax policy, a big hammer. Liability, tremendously important in a market economy. Regulation. In the United States, at least, I think regulation comes last. Market opportunity comes first. We could argue about the relative position of tax policy and liability, but they are both tremendously important drivers, and I want to focus on them now. Our report consequently recommends tax incentives to encourage the accelerated retirement of legacy systems, a big problem in every sector we looked at. All our workshops felt this was a significant challenge. We know how to do that. I also note, and this is what brings me to the committee this morning, our current liability scheme is radically misaligned with security. I can't think of any other area of social and economic life in which one can introduce knowingly insecure or unsuitable devices into the stream of commerce with no liability for the economic consequences of doing so. This is untenable. I believe it will change, but it is not changing at this point, and unless we can change it, we will not become substantially more secure. We have to clean this market up. Do you recall the DDoS attack on Dyne last year? Do you remember how that was orchestrated? It was done through uh, by encrypt, conscripting into a botnet video surveillance cameras, the kind that you see in any shopping center, bus station, or whatever, and also the kind that you would buy to watch your babysitter at home if you're inclined to do that sort of thing. None of these devices had any security in them. All of them were digital. All of them were connected. They created a huge botnet. I don't remember, frankly, there's hundreds of thousands or a million of these things. But can you imagine? If the manufacturers of these devices thought that they would face third-party liability for the foreseeable consequences of, of marketing devices like that with no security in them, how many days would it have taken them to pull those things off the shelves? Two? Three? Not more. That's the sort of effect that a liability regime can have on our security. We're not doing it. Now, allow me an observation. None of these three conditions I've talked about that create insecurity has a technological solution. The failure to deploy available technology is not a technological challenge. It is a management challenge and an economic challenge. We know how to isolate networks. We know how to make simpler, safer chips and controls. We know how to create tax incentives and liability incentives. That's why, also I ought to point out, we know how to create a more secure domain name system and border gateway controls protocols, for those of you who understand what that means. But we don't do it. 
And that's why our study at MIT concluded that the most difficult cybersecurity challenges are legal, commercial, and political, and not technological. This comes from the world's best known technology institution. It seems to me, and I'm not the first person to say this, that we're at a juncture reminiscent of the debates about motor vehicle safety in the mid-1960s. In April 1966, the Seventh Circuit, in a case called Evans versus General Motors, held that GM was not liable for the fatal consequences of a side impact collision involving one of its X-frame vehicles that had an X-frame chassis, which had no protection against side impact. As the defense described the holding, the opinion of the court decides that General Motors' duty was, as it concedes, to design an automobile to be reasonably fit for the purpose for which it was made and free from hidden defects, but that notwithstanding General Motors' foreseeability of possible broadside collisions, the, quote, intended purpose of the automobile does not include participation in such collisions. Okay. This is very much where we are now with software liability. Later that year, Congress passed the Highway Safety Act and the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act. This legislation changed the vehicle market and has dramatically reduced traffic fatalities in our nation. Instead of, instead of expecting drivers to modify their behavior, which is what the automotive industry repeatedly says, it's drivers who, who are the cause of accidents, which is undoubtedly true, undoubtedly true. The act sought to change the entire safety environment by imposing duties on manufacturers and by altering the interaction between driver and vehicle. It seems to me we're at a similar juncture, or should be. Bad driver behavior is indeed responsible for many accidents, just as online behavior is responsible for many cyber intrusions. They say out at Fort Meade, one of the, my favorite expressions that I learned early in my service out there, that the weakest link in any system is never the silicon-based unit on the, de on, the, on the desk, it's the carbon-based unit in the chair. <laughs> Trying to improve user behavior is worth the trouble up to a point. Yet I'll say this plainly, any regime that leaves security fundamentally in the hands of users is a, is a going to be a failure, is necessarily going to be a failure. And by the way, since I'm speaking of users, I th some of you may know the old joke that there are only two businesses in our society who describe their customers as users. <laughs> When convenience butts heads with security, convenience wins hands down every time. Instead, we should be aiming to change the entire environment, and that includes the behavior of software manufacturers. In my opinion, this cannot be done without the imp imposition of a reasonable liability regime that's sensitive to innovation, but intolerant of knowingly or recklessly insecure products. Well, we still got products with buffer overflows that are being marketed right now. This is, this is extraordinary. That should be a per se liability. To those of you who are politically allergic both to regulation and to anything that would benefit the plaintiff's bar, I say this. Our only other alternative is the highly unsatisfactory status quo. These are our three choices. These are our only three choices. And it seems to me that the least intrusive alternative to the status quo 
is an evolving liability framework. The current legal order undermines our national security. It is also out of whack in principle for the following reasons. One, it encourages the marketing of software known by its manufacturers to be insecure and in some cases knowingly unsuitable for the uses to which it will be put. Software is virtually always marketed in beta versions even for critical uses, thereby facilitating the externalization of risk. Two, in most cases, the lack of liability probably places the risk of failure on the parties least able to insure against it. It certainly removes the ability of insurance carriers to reduce the risk for all of us by inducing their insureds to improve software quality because they're not they're not writing that kind of cover. This is bad policy. Three, lack of liability moves us backward to a regime of caveat emptor. And it does so, contrary to the entire movement of, of law uh, since the Uniform Commercial Code, and it does so in an area where licensors, and that's what we are, not purchasers, where licensors, even in most large enterprises, are in no position to evaluate the quality of goods and services on offer. This is irrational as well as unfair. Four, treating software licenses as sales under Article II of the UCC denies licensees the rights ordinarily incident to ownership while giving manufacturers the benefit of warranty inclusions ordinarily incident to a sale. This is deeply unfair and probably can be fixed only by statute. Fifteen years ago, an argument uh, like the one I'm making now about software, um, and I'm intentionally passing over the difficult and important question of what this is, would mean in practice in terms of liability regimes. That argument would have sounded like a garden variety commercial dispute. Who would have understood its relationship to national security? I hope it's clear now that it is no such thing. Our entire world is dependent on reliable and reasonably secure software. And the lack of it makes it increasingly difficult to protect the nation's vital functions, communications, transportation, finance, power, to name a few. The question of software liability is therefore a question of law and national security, and is thus tailor-made for the attention of an ABA standing committee with those words in its name. Thank you. It's getting late, but I'll be happy to take questions. Maybe a quick couple of questions. Sir. Um, that was an outstanding you presentation. Are. I'm sorry. My name is Joe Hennessy. I'm a private practitioner in Thank you for an outstanding groundbreaking presentation because it's the first time that it's been suggested that the enormous resources of the plaintiffs who are should be tapped to for national security. Um, what are the nuts and bolts of your suggestion? Do we introduce model state law, treat private rights of action with statutory damages? What are the specifics in, in that that would allow individuals to bring suit for uh, liability on failure to be considered? 
I, I think it's across the, that's a, that's a whole discussion all by itself and will be a really interesting workshop. Um, it seems to me that one ought to be looking for test cases that, that put the most egregious examples that cause damage um, in, into litigation. Uh, either you win those cases or you make it clear why we have to have a statute for one thing. That's where I think I'd start. Um, the, the, right now we've got Supreme Court law that, that, makes, that says, look, claims for economic damage as opposed to physical damage sound in warranty. This goes back to the UCC2 problem. Um, that's, uh, there's some interesting English, there's an interesting English case, by the way, involving uh, in 2010. Uh, let me see if I've got the reference to that um, that you ought to look at. Uh, Kingsway Hall Hotel versus Red Sky. Kingsway Hall. And uh, 2010. Anyway, you'll find it. You'll see what kinds of litigation has been go have been going on there. It may be the Europeans will beat us to this. That wouldn't be bad, by the way, because we're talking about a global market. And if, if somebody has to make something safer over there, they'll sell a safer version over here. Sir. Uh, Lauren, appreciate it. Thank you very much. I've been active with the committee since about 1989. I recognize you, Lawrence. Good to see and, you. Uh, I call it more than active. What's that? More than active. More than active. It's okay. Lawrence, your question. Yeah. Hi. Uh, brilliant remarks, and I echo what this gentleman said. A uh, couple of very short questions. Could you give this, uh, the script of this uh, speech to uh, Holly to circulate, uh, number one? Number two, uh, have you yet briefed any uh, committees of Congress and who would they be? Uh, and related to that, do you have a sponsor, a legislative sponsor that you targeted, if I may use that word, uh, if from Massachusetts or any other state, to begin to carry these ideas forward at a federal legislative level? Um. Yes to the first question. Uh, I'm happy to make the remarks available. Um, the, um, I've had more traction actually with the White House than I have with the Hill. I know that our report this is... This White House? This White House. Yes, this White House. Um, which is... Uh, after, our report came out six weeks before the final executive order. The previous versions had almost nothing to say about critical infrastructure. The final one had a lot to say about critical infrastructure. I can't prove it, but I, I really think there's a connection. Um, but I have, um, maybe I haven't been energetic enough in pursuing issues on the Hill. Uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to take that one, um, and, and we need to. Uh, we need to do that. But that would require you know, also taking ideas that I think are important and turn them into a bill, a draft. That would be another project. Last question, so they're at it by nine. Last question. Sir, of course. I'm a pencil. Hi. How are you? Uh, I guess the question I had was, have you gone before American Law Institute or other forums, and what would you have of a, a, a section, or the, excuse me, in this case, a forum do in terms of the ABA moving this forward? Because I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a really critical area. The, fir the first question, answer the first question uh, is no. I'm, on law, I thought I'm starting right here in, in my home ballpark. 
and, and, and we'll take it on the road after that. Um, the first thing I'd like to see this committee do is to produce a really good memorandum on the current state of litigation in this area. Somebody perhaps has done that already. I'd like to see that. That would be an easy one to farm out to law students. We need that. That's what's starting point. Great. Uh, next, you know, I mean. I'd be happy to help you with that. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Um, we want to be a little over, as always. Thank you. A wonderful discussion. And we have, we have some Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity.